0: Hello, everybody. This is Dan Trotter. Pretty good Bible studies. This audio will begin, will begin in Mark chapter nine, starting in verse thirty. We're going to take up several stories. First, as A.T. Robertson describes it, returning privately through Galilee, he again foretells his death and resurrection. We left him last chapter, a uh, last audio, in verse twenty-nine in Mark chapter nine. He had just come down off the Mount of Transfiguration. He found his disciples in a dispute, in a dispute with the Pharisees because they could not cast out that epileptic demon. He cast out that demon, and now he's walking back to Capernaum from up near Caesarea Philippi in the north. We're going to take that up, and then after Jesus, on the way back, Jesus tells the disciples for the third time, actually, that he was going to die and be raised again from the dead. Then after that, we're going to skip the incident in Matthew chapter 17 where Jesus pays the half shekel for the temple by telling Peter to find a fish with a coin in it. That's discussed in Matthew, but not in Mark, so we'll skip that. And then the next thing we're going to talk about is they're still in Capernaum, getting ready to go down to Jerusalem where Jesus will be crucified. The twelve contend as to who shall be the greatest under the Messiah's reign. And Jesus tells them, look, if you're going to be a subject in the kingdom of God, you've got to be childlike. So that'll take us down to Mark 9, verse 37. We're just going to do eight verses, eight verses in this audio. So let's take Jesus now at the foot of the Mount of Transfiguration. Mark 9, verse 30 through 32. Well, let's start with verse 30. Then they left that place and made their way through Galilee, but he did not want anyone to know it. They left that place, that's Caesarea Philippi, which was near Mount Hermon, which I'm assuming is where the Mount of Transfiguration was. And they made their way through Galilee. In other words, they're going back down toward Capernaum. Now, why did Jesus do no more public ministry? Mark adds the detail that the other synoptics don't add that he didn't. Jesus did not want anybody to know that they were walking through Galilee. No more public ministry for Jesus. This is it. It's over. Why? Well, he did not have the time to be delayed before he went to Jerusalem to be crucified. He knew he would be killed at Passover because he's the Passover lamb. In order for him to be the Passover lamb, he had to get down there to Jerusalem before the Passover, and it was fast approaching. John Gill adds this. He said that Jesus wanted to have private time with his disciples to prepare them for what lay ahead. Let me read the quote from Gill. Quote, By comparing Matthew 17:22 and 23 with Luke 9:43 and 44, With this passage in Mark, we gather that as our Lord's reason for going through Galilee more privately than usual on this occasion was to reiterate to them the announcement which had so shocked them at the first mention of it, and thus familiarize them with it little and little. So this was his reason for an enjoining silence upon them as to their present movements. Now we're going to see as we go through this that Jesus has predicted both his death and resurrection three times in a short period of time. First at Caesarea Philippi when when Peter said, no, 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 you can't be killed. And then when he was coming down from the Mount of Transfiguration that morning after he came down, he said the same thing. And then we're going to see on the way back to Capernaum, he says the same thing. And the disciples had a hard time with it. Now, let me talk about the parallels here. Uh, Mark 9, the parallel with this story that we're talking about now is in Matthew 17, verses 22 and 23, and Luke 9, verses 43 through 45. In Mark 9:31, continuing with our story, the scripture says this, For he was teaching his disciples and telling them, The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after he is killed, he will rise three days later. But they did not understand this statement, and they were afraid to ask him. The Son of Man is a messianic title. They hear Messiah, 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 and then the next thing Jesus says is the Messiah is going to be killed. And then they hear that he's going to be risen again. They did not understand this. Why were they afraid to ask him? Probably they felt like they would be chastised. Jesus was a pretty tough teacher. He put up with nonsense. He kept saying, oh, How long, you unbelieving generation, am I going to have to put up with you? Oh, you of little faith. He said that all the time. And I'm sure the disciples are thinking, well, I just don't understand what he's talking about, but I'm just a little bit nervous about asking him because he's going to say I'm stupid again. Now, this doesn't mean that they didn't love Jesus. Of course, they loved him. They died for him. But they were smart enough to realize they didn't know what he was talking about. He was in another world than where they were. And one reason they didn't understand it was because when they thought Messiah, they were thinking messianic kingdom. They're thinking glory, political victory, military victory. And we'll see later, they even started arguing about who was going to be the greatest in that kingdom. And here Jesus is talking about dying? If he dies, what happens to our messianic kingdom? And who's going to get to sit at the right and left hand of Jesus if he's dead? Now, some people have raised a problem about how in the world could the disciples be ignorant of Jesus' death and resurrection? As I said three times, he said this. if says, Philippi coming down from the Mount of Transfiguration, and now right here in this verse, which is on the way to Capernaum in Mark 9, verse 31, he said the same thing three times. And so people have raised a problem about that, and they said, well, how could they not have understood? Well, here's some options to explain that. One, maybe they understood what Jesus said about being killed, because that was straightforward, according to John Gill. But what they couldn't understand is how such a holy and just man could be put to death. Yeah, we understand you say you're going to be killed, Jesus. But why? You're doing miracles. You're teaching. You're preaching love and compassion. Their notions of the Messiah, how could they fit in with Jesus being killed, didn't make any sense. And they also didn't know what rising from the dead, because nobody had risen from the dead that they knew of. So what does that mean? What do you mean, rising from the dead? Well, I think that explains it. They they just didn't understand the implication. They understood the physical fact of dying. but they, I'm not sure they understood the physical fact of rising from the dead, and they certainly didn't understand the implications of a glorious Messiah being killed. So Jesus was kept dr- trying to drill it into their heads. Some people try to explain it that, the they that didn't understand were the other nine disciples because they were more spiritually obtuse than Peter, James, and John. This is Adam Clark's idea. I do not believe that. I believe that Peter, James, and John were just as obtuse as the other nine. I don't think we ought to make distinctions that way. Let's remin- reminisce a little bit here when they were coming down from the mountain in Mark nine ten, They kept this word to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. That's when Jesus said, don't tell anybody about this man of transfiguration until I've risen from the dead. And so... They have to think, yeah, what does that mean, dying? Because if you rise from the dead, that means you have to die first. How can the Messiah die? And they're discussing that. They were discussing amongst themselves what in the world that was. And then you recall at Caesarea Philippi when Jesus said he was going to die and be risen again. Peter said, no, no, no. And he rebuked Jesus. And then Jesus turned around, looked at the disciples, rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, because you're not thinking about God's concerns, but man's. So we have the problem in the disciple and the band of disciples here. They didn't understand what Jesus was about to go through. They weren't prepared. Now these disciples, I said, they were afraid to be upbraided for their stupidity and unbelief, which is perfectly logical, and especially when you consider that they had just been rebuked for their lack of faith in delivering the demon-possessed boy. Why couldn't we deliver him, Jesus? Because you didn't pray and fast enough, or you didn't pray enough, and you didn't have enough faith. Jesus explicitly told them. And of course, Peter had been called Satan for what he's when the last time that he discussed it privately with Jesus. And then he was called Satan publicly in front of the disciples. So, yeah, I could see why they were a little reticent about asking that exactly what do you mean about this death and resurrection business? Notice in verse 31, Mark 9, Mark says, The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of men. That's a present continuous tense. In other words, the very process is occurring right now. So while the betrayal of the Son of Man is being carried out now, the disciples are thinking about that glory on the Mount of Transfiguration, and Jesus is trying to get them off of that and say, Look, just because you saw that glory doesn't mean it's going to be like that in the immediate future. I'm going to have to be crucified, and you're going to be scattered, chased, delivered, persecu- excuse me, persecuted from synagogue to synagogue. Now, on another occasion, this is a little bit off the subject, but in another occasion, Luke 24, verse 7, Jesus said, the Son of Man must be betrayed into the hands of sinful men. And, of course, he's probably referring to Gentiles there. And to betray an Israelite into the hands of a Gentile was considered a foul, vile crime. But they forgot that rule when it came to Jesus. They betrayed him. Now, Matthew 17, verse 23 adds another detail when Jesus told them he was going to be killed. Says they were deeply distressed. Homer Christian Study Bible. The NIV said they were filled with grief. Apparently they didn't hear or understand the raised up part of what Jesus said. He said, Yeah, I'm going to be killed and I'm going to be raised up. Three days later. I mean, so you're going to have to be without me for three days. If they had really understood what Jesus was going to say was saying, then they would realize that, well, Jesus will be dead for three days, but then we're going to get him back, and so everything will be cool just like it was before. But that's a hard thing for them to see because it was just off their radar scope jesus also predicted the method of his death in another instance in luke 24 the son of man must be betrayed into to the hands of sinful men he be crucified so that's not being killed but crucified now we pick up another detail in luke 9:44. when jesus tells them he's about to be killed he says let these words sink in which is kind of a strong way to put it think about it boys Let the words sink in through your thick skulls. The Son of Man is about to be betrayed. Luke 9, verse 45 also adds this fact. It was concealed from them so that they could not grasp it. It's kind of an interesting way to put it. It's it's almost like God concealed it from them. It was concealed from them, but it doesn't really say that. It just says they didn't understand it. Moving on with Mark, chapter 9, verse 33. Mark says this, then they came to Capernaum. So they've come all the way down from Caesarea Philippi, which is a good ways north of the Sea of Galilee, straight up the Jordan Valley there. They came back to Capernaum on the northwestern shore of the Sea of Galilee. When he, Jesus, was in the house, and that's the house of Simon and Andrew, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the way? Now Jesus, of course, knew what they were arguing about, but he asked the question to give opportunity to reprove them for their pride. Because what were they arguing about? Who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God? We have a minor reconciliation problem here. Matthew 18, 1, which is in the parallel passage in Matthew 18. That verse says this, In that hour came the disciples unto Jesus, saying, Who then is the greatest? In Mark 9, it says, Jesus asked them, What were you arguing about? So the disciples raised the question in Matthew. Jesus raised the question in Mark. Here are some options on how you can reconcile that. One of the, or two of them first referred the matter to Jesus on the way to Capernaum, and then Jesus didn't answer until they got to Capernaum, and then he brought it up again. Here's another way to reconcile it. Upon arrival at Capernaum, Jesus asked the, the disciples first. He talks first, who's the greatest? The disciples were too ashamed to answer, but upon reflecting what Jesus knew what they were talking about, they then took courage and asked Jesus, who was the greatest? In other words, they repeated the question that Jesus had asked them. So that's not too hard to reconcile. Moving on to verse 34 in Mark 9, but they were silent. The disciples were silent because on the way they had been arguing with one another about who was the greatest. Parallel passage in 18.1, the question was that they asked Jesus who is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So they're talking about the kingdom, the messianic kingdom. That's what they're interested in. Now this topic of who was greatest in the kingdom of heaven... Came up more than once with the disciples. Once in Luke 22 verse 24, then a dispute also arose them, arose among them about who should be considered the greatest. This is at a different time. This is in and then in Mark 10 verses 35 through 37. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee approached him and said, "Teacher, we want you to do something for us if we ask you. What do you want me to do for you?" He asked them. They answered him, "Allow us to sit at your right and your left in your glory." So those are other situations where these people are worried about their spot in the temporal kingdom that they expected. All the while Jesus is getting ready to be crucified, the disciples are getting ready to rule in power and glory. Now when it says a dispute among them arose as they traveled back to Capernaum, obviously that Jesus had left them alone, otherwise they wouldn't be able to have that dispute. So Jesus told them the painful news of his impending death, and then he let them travel by themselves. Why? Why? Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown gives two possible reasons. One, to give himself privacy to contemplate what was about to happen. Two, to give the disciples time to discuss and prepare themselves for the crucifixion, which, of course, did not happen. They were too busy talking about who was going to be the big shot. Mark 9:35, sitting down, Jesus sitting down. He called the twelve and said to him, sitting is how rabbis taught. by the way, it was an usual position for Jewish rabbis to teach. Sitting down, he called the twelve and said to them, if anyone wants to be first, he must be last of all and a servant of all. And so now Jesus gives the famous comparison of a child, someone that wants to be a leader in the kingdom of God must be like a child, which of course is not the way the disciples were thinking. Mark nine thirty six through 37, he continues, Then he took a child and had him stand among them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one little child such as this in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me but him who sent me. So you want to make God happy, make Jesus happy. You want to make Jesus happy, take care of the little children and get down on their level. Don't forget them. How many times have they forgotten in church? Oh, let's go park them in the nursery. Get them out of the way so we can listen to that great, exciting sermon. Even though sermons didn't exist in the New Testament church, we're going to listen to that, and we're going to shovel, shuffle the kids off into the nursery. No, 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 no. That's not the way it's supposed to be. The bit about Jesus taking the child in his arms, that's the detail that Mark adds. is not mentioned in the other parallel passage. In Luke 9, verse 47, it says, Jesus knowing the thoughts of their hearts. How did he know? Well, maybe he heard them heard talking on the way, or maybe he just could, look, he knew them well enough to know. I don't think this is supernatural. I think that their attitude was pretty obvious. Matthew 182 2-5 says this, then he called a child to him and had him stand among them. I assure you, he said, unless you are converted and become like children, converted means you have to change. There he explicitly tells the disciples, you need to change, guys. Unless you change and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child, this one is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one child like this in my name welcomes me. The application points of that is pretty obvious. And think about all these hot shot pastor popes, think that they're God's gift to the world and they're going to tell all the little babies in their congregation how to do this, and how to believe this and how to do that. And how dare you tell me I'm wrong and don't you ever criticize me and don't you ever suggest that my teaching is wrong. There's too many people like that. If they would just listen to what Jesus said about children and behave like a child, you're not going to act arrogant anymore. Now, when Jesus compares someone great in the kingdom to a child, he's referring to the positive aspects of children. They're trusting, they're unpretentious, they're humble, they're free from ambition. He's not contemplating the bad sides of children, such as their rebellion and immaturity. Of course, it's an analogy. All right, I'm going to finish up this audio by going back and picking up a verse in Mark 9 that I skipped. Verse 35, Mark and Matthew and Luke all talked about the little child that was brought in the midst as an object lesson to prove and to show that humility is important. Mark adds another object lesson about humility in verse 35. Sitting down, which is what Jewish rabbis do when they're getting ready to teach, he called the twelve and said to them, "If anyone wants to be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Well, first of all, why did he call the twelve? Well, probably the people who were disputing about who was going to be great, Peter James, and John, perhaps they were going to be specially rebuked because they were the ones that were arguing. It doesn't really say that they were, but we can assume they, they those three were the leaders they were probably thinking about who's going to be the greatest because they were the ones that were always with Jesus in the critical times of his ministry. They were obviously the closest ones to Jesus. But Jesus at this point calls all 12 of the disciples, all 12 of the apostles, to himself and said to them, if anyone wants to be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. So he uses this as an occasion to teach them all about humility. And John Gill speculates that the other nine were guilty of the same kind of thinking as Peter, James, and John, which I wouldn't be surprised they were. Now, the Holy Christian Bible Translates slave as servant. It can be translated both ways, servant and slave, because slaves obviously were servants. Not all servants were slaves, but all slaves were servants. I like the stronger translation to be slave of all. The King James has minister of all, which doesn't really grab you too much. So that's the way to power in the kingdom of God. You notice that the principles are reversed. The way to power in worldly kingdoms in business or in government is to stomp on everybody, step on their head as they try to push their way up, kick them off the ladder and laugh as they fall off. But no, if we serve other people, you know, even in business, I used to teach business in college, management from the heart. I saw a video one time, management from the heart. And basically it said, serve your employees, help them. If they have a problem, show them how they can fix it. Give them the resources they need to fix it. And guess what? You will be a successful manager. People automatically gravitate to that sort of person. People love that kind of manager. Unfortunately, there are few of those types, especially in the People's Republic of China, in which the workers generally are treated like slaves. I don't know how else to put it, but I've got too many examples of that, too many people I know who are being abused right now as I speak, being abused by idiotic managers who all they think about is making a buck and... And driving their workers to distraction, making them work 12 hours a day, 7 days a week. And if you don't do that, we're going to fire you. That kind of nonsense. Don't do that. Be a servant to people. Don't put religious guilt on people. Help them get free of their sins. Help them when they don't have enough food to eat. Just help them. Be a slave to them. Think about other people all the time. And that is the secret to a happy Christian life. All right, with well, on that happy thought, we're going to shut it down. Hope you enjoyed this audio. We'll take up Mark 9, verse 38. Next audio as we see other people keep driving out demons in Jesus' name and the disciples are wondering, how are we going to deal with this? They're probably still thinking about, are they going to take our place in the kingdom of heaven? We're the big shots here. We don't need somebody else preaching the gospel. See you next time.